So good morning, my name's Evan Wickham. My wife Sandy and I have the joy of leading Park Hill Church with a fantastic team. And we today are getting into Matthew 18. And you know, as, as 20, I wanna say this first, just kind of uh, prefatory comments. As 21st century Westerners, there are moments when we read Jesus' teachings and he makes us feel warm and fuzzy and it feels really good. And uh, <clears throat> there are other times when you read Jesus and, and he kind of makes our sensitivities cringe. Like when he calls the religious leaders a wicked and adulterous generation back in Matthew 12 and 16. It's like, man, Jesus. And then like back in Matthew 7, he, he, he talks to his disciples like, hey, don't waste your valuable pearls on pigs. I'm like, whoa, Jesus, I, I'm, that's, that's not my Western fluffy, like hippy-dippy Jesus idea of who you are. But that we read sometimes, and it's like, I mean, it'd feel really nice. You guys know Marie Kondo, the tidy up Marie? It'd feel really nice to be like, like, Jesus on hell and judgment. Does this doctrine spark joy? No, I will get rid of it, you know? <laughs> if you know the show, you know what I'm talking about. Like, oh, Jesus on loving your neighbor. Does this spark joy? Yes, I will keep it, you know? Um, like, it would be nice to do that, but Jesus doesn't let us do that. That's not how the scriptures work. The written words infallibly reveal the capital W living word who is Jesus on every page. So uh, it's, it's hard to hear what Jesus has to say. Sometimes. And right now, his hard sayings are all about community and being a community in the mess. So, so yeah, by the way I'm setting this up, you can tell what, <laughs> what kind of sermon this is going to be. Like, does anybody want my job right now? Um, so we're going to walk through Matthew 18 today, and instead of reading it all at once, we're going to chunk through it. This whole chapter is really one continuous flow of thought. So just to refresh, a little refresher, two chapters ago... Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say I am? And, and they had some ideas of who others say he is. And Jesus said, who do you say? And Peter nailed it. Like, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, yes. And the way I will be the Christ, which means king, the way I'll be the king of Israel is by dying. Uh, not by a perceived victory the way you would expect. It's gonna be by dying and then you, my disciples, will take my kingdom forward by living lives of death for other people. Uh, this is not what they expected. They were expecting living lives of just kick them in the face, win. Uh, but it was losing for the sake of the other, uh, losing your life to gain. That's what Jesus' community would be like. Uh, so, so, so the disciples have the hardest time with this. They're like on the struggle bus with this. They can't handle it. All the disciples hear, all they're hearing is really scary news that their leader, who they've been training under, is gonna die by the people in charge of the state. So, so in their minds, Jesus is about to die, and so Matthew 18, verse one, look what they ask. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, well, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So they're obviously off on the wrong foot. They're like, you're gonna die, so if you die, who's the next in line? Which of us has to take this thing forward? And Jesus' answer is interesting. He basically says, none of you and all of you. So first slide here, aside from the text, none, he's, Jesus is saying, next slide, none of you are more important than the others and all of you will take my mission forward into the world together as one unified community shaped like me, your servant king. And their minds are just, they can't take it in at this point. And so Jesus actually does answer their question. Who's the greatest? All, none of you and all of you as one equal brothers and sisters, family, community shaped like me. It's pretty amazing. And so this teaching reaffirms one of Park Hill's primary pillars. Last year we looked at the pillar series and it's this true, authentic community, what it means to really be a family. So that's what we're talking about today, because I think it's timely. Our culture doesn't reward community, because community means actual commitment. Like, we're all about making connections these days. There's like a 100,000 ways to make connections, but making commitments, not so much. We're not so much about that. Our digital society is super connected, and, 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 but when you get tired of someone, you can like mute them, you know? Or like disconnect. It's super easy. You just log out. Um, 
But if, but if you get tired of commitment, you can't like discommit. I mean, that's not a word. There's no such word as discommitting. I mean, you can break a commitment, but no one likes that, so we like to keep our options open. Um, we're an options open culture. I mean, generally speaking, we value connectivity and tiptoe around commitment. So Dan and I uh, were in school with this amazing pastor up in San Francisco. He leads this church, and uh, he, he had his church do this poll recently. Uh, I love this poll. One of the questions in the poll was this. Think about this. His whole church, like 1,700 people took this poll, and the vast majority did take the poll. They did answer. And they said, would your community group be reason enough to decline moving to another city for a better job? So would your committed community of, of disciples, would that be enough reason to keep you from taking a better job opportunity? He asked that, and, and, and I'm, I'm true story, like not making up this number. Um, exactly, next slide, exactly 66.6 answered no. That, that's super, super demonic, y'all. Like, like uh, so, so true story. But in all seriousness though, let's be honest. It's hard to commit. It's hard to commit. Like sometimes we talk about this idea like togetherness and diversity and equality. We talk about, oh, we're just gonna share life, do life together or whatever. But the reality is when you hit, when you hit boots on the ground, it gets super messy really fast. And so Matthew, so Jesus has to teach his disciples this. Matthew 18 is all about what to do in the mess. So are you ready? This is messy. So um, Jesus, so, so what we're gonna find is this. I wanna show you this slide. This is what we're gonna find. Jesus' discipleship community, aka the church, will be way better and grittier and life-giving and harder than you can imagine. But it will be worth it because this is how Jesus is gonna reveal his glory in the world. And ultimately, this is where you're gonna find the acceptance and meaning and purpose that you've always been longing for. So, so the disciples ask, who's the greatest? Jesus, the first thing he does is bring a little kid, a little child. And then look at verse two. He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So, okay, Matthew is saying the first thing is this. The first step into true community is believing that you belong to a good father who loves his kids. Do you believe that? Step one. Your father is so good, and he loves his kids so much. And once you get that straight, the flow, naturally, is hospitality and kindness and forgiveness and all the things your father's like. That's why he means be like children, because children are like their fathers in many ways, for better or worse. And when you have a perfectly good father, if you're at all like him, that's really good. So Jesus is saying, be like him. Authentic community starts here. It's grounded in your heavenly father's goodness. So when you come awake, you guys, to the reality of the father's deep goodness, and that he sent his son Jesus to demonstrate that love, through his death and resurrection, and that the resurrected Jesus is now reigning, like his reign is the one that's gonna last, and, and that your good father is reorienting the universe around Jesus, and then when you accept all of that as true and then live out of that reality, you become part of his family. It's amazing, and then the Holy Spirit fills you and actually empowers you to live like you're his kid. It's not just like come in and try. He says come in and I'll come into you. Come into me and I'll come into you. And he helps you and he partners with you and then you can be the child of the Father he has called you to be. He gives you his power. It's amazing. So the Holy Spirit fills your life and empowers you to be like him and others around you get to benefit from that. That's like ground zero of true community. That's what we're called to as a church. This is where it begins. So uh, now, before Christ returns, in the meantime we have this teaching. <laughs> Because Christ hasn't returned and the kingdom isn't fully come yet, 
we're in this messy middle place where things don't always work out the way we plan and people betray us and mess with us and we mess with them and expectations aren't met and communication is bad a lot of the time. And so Jesus gives us this practical teaching. So, uh, and forgiveness is at the center of it. Forgiveness is the glue. And here's what Jesus does from here. He takes that child and he uses the kid as a metaphor. These, this child, this is, this is what I want all my, all my church, all of my church to be, like this child. Look at verse six. If anyone causes one of these little ones, and he says, those who believe in me, see that? He points to the child and it's a metaphor. He's like, if anyone causes one of these little ones, and he like waves his hand, so to speak, across his disciples. You guys, it's a metaphor, you guys are the children. So put yourself in that place. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it'd be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, they're inevitable, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, those who believe in me, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. <laughs> okay. So it's super trippy, this whole passage. So execution by drowning, you got there. Self-mutilation, you got. And then hell just pops up twice without like a definition. And then angels. And it's like, okay, like this is difficult. These are a lot of hard things coming at us at once from Jesus at this moment. Um, and again, I wanna, I wanna say there's a coherent flow of thought here, and it's actually very troubling and very profound. I'm not gonna sugarcoat it today, or any day. Hopefully I never sugarcoat Jesus. And Jesus, he's intentionally going for shock value here. Simply put, Jesus knows that his community of disciples are gonna hurt each other. He knows this. He knows us, and he knows that will happen. So in this section, he is commanding us to be aware, super aware of our own character flaws and sinful bents that tend to hurt others, and not just others, but ourselves too. And Jesus is saying basically this. He's saying, listen, for San Diego, Park Hill, listen, I want you to deal with this junk and I want you to deal with them now before they hurt any more people. This is the only loving way to live together. So his heart, his father's heart is breaking over all of this. And uh, we have a teaching meeting on Tuesdays and I love how Alexis said it in the teaching meeting. Three words, simply, love draws lines. Love draws lines. I mean, if you're a parent or an, an uncle or an aunt, you know this you know that a life without lines would be a very unloving place. Like a designated area is required for flourishing. We all know this, whether you're talking about a vegetable garden or like a kindergarten or raising children or a church community, life that is full of meaning and purpose will not take shape without intentional structure of some kind. Um, we assume this when we organize anything. A truly loving fam family says, you know what? Listen, you know, that, that sinful behavior, that objectification of others, that way you objectify others for, the, for your own self-pleasuring or that gossip or that bitterness or resentment or the way your words are coming out of your mouth, as your community, we wanna let you know that that activity runs against the nature of our servant king and it will ultimately destroy you and that's where we are gonna draw the line here in our community because Jesus commands us to. And this isn't just for our own sake, like so that I'm a less sinful person or whatever. It is for that, but it's for the sake of the community. It's for the sake of this body. 
One part suffers, the whole suffers. That's what it's talking about. Jesus uses a weird word, phrase for this, stumbling. Like he's, if anyone causes a little one to stumble. And that word stumbling, Jesus' logic there is there are things that I can do. This is so against individualism. This is so against how we're raised. But there are things I can do that can actually lead to failure and sin in your life. Like, somehow my own character flaws and brokenness, they will will never be just my own private issues. They'll always have the potential to overflow into the community and cause a sinful reaction in you. I mean, I'm talking right now in front of hundreds of people feeling the weight of this. And, and, and so, so the fact that I can do something that ultimately results in a, some kind of reaction that leads to you not following Jesus anymore. Like, and, and did you notice how Jesus refers to like cutting off the hand? It looks like amputate, self-mutilation or whatever. Uh, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot, if your eye, pluck it out. Like, this sounds super weird and out of context to us because we, we, we weren't raised memorizing the entire Hebrew scriptures, Old Testament, like Jesus was. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's standing with the Proverbs, the ancient wisdom tradition of Israel, and, and he's talking about hands, feet, and eyes. And if you want a fun like word search in the Bible study thing to do one day, just, just search hand, foot, eyes in like Bible study software and watch what happens in Proverbs and Psalms. It's very interesting. Hardly anything good happens. So when you hear hands, feet, and eyes, it's not good. It's connected to all kinds of self-destructive behavior. Like, for example, here's a famous one. Proverbs 6, starting in verse 12. A troublemaker and a villain who goes about with a corrupt mouth, who winks maliciously with his eye, signals with his feet. Like, I don't know if that... <laughs> signals with his feet and motions with his fingers, who plots evil with deceit in his heart. He always stirs up conflict. Therefore, disaster will overtake him in an instant, and he'll suddenly be destroyed without remedy. So that's hundreds of years before Jesus. So Jesus says, if your hand causes it, if your eye, if your, all the Jewish lights in the dashboard are all going off in his hearers. They're like, oh my gosh, he means absolute business right now, because that's the scariest stuff in our Bibles. And, and, and Jesus is saying, yes, I, I, I stand with that. And then look at what comes next. The very next verse in that same proverb, he said, look, next slide. There are six things. Do you have the next slide or no? Yes. There are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and get this, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. So do you see what's happening here? Jesus is pointing back to that and saying, I'm with that, and and I am the Lord. He's basically saying this. This is basically what Jesus is saying. I am the Lord, and I love building my community. That's you. I will not just stand by and watch your sin destroy you and everyone else around you in the community. So be free from sin. Deal with sin now. I mean, Jesus' language is so strong here. The word stumbling actually means falling down. Like, it's crazy. I have the potential to do something so damaging to someone else in the community that they become disillusioned and jaded and bitter and walk away from following Jesus. I mean, many of us in this room probably know someone that's like walked away from Jesus because of being wounded by someone in the church, a member of the church. Uh, Many of us probably know family members even. Uh, Maybe that's you, and you're here right now, and to which I say, you're brave, thank you, you're welcome here, this is amazing, we love that you're here. And we acknowledge that, that that's very real. And I'm not going to sugarcoat, like, it would actually be more, Jesus says it would actually be more preferable for me to strap a giant boulder to my head and walk the plank than 
sin in such a way that any of you were caused to abandon the faith. There's no way around the shocking, violent images Jesus is using here. He's deadly serious. Apparently, there's almost nothing more serious to Jesus than the idea of me doing that to you. So Jesus is taking this seriously, so I think it's appropriate to ask ourselves some questions right now as a family. Soul search, gut check. Am I as serious as Jesus is about this? Just take a deep breath, and this question is between you and the Holy Spirit. And the second question, am I willing to admit, let alone do something about, my own sin? And then finally, this one, this is like the money one. Okay, you answer that, but what about this? What lines have I drawn for myself out of love for the rest of the community of disciples? Is there a list? Is there one? Is there six, three, two? That's a good question to talk through in your communities on Community Sunday, just in the spirit of confession, in the spirit of coming close to the Father's heart, everyone together. And Jesus continues, verse 12. What do you think? If a man owns 100 sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered? If he finds it, truly I tell you, he's happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that didn't wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. So again, at this point, Jesus circles back to the ground zero for all his teachings, which is the goodness of the Father, so compassionate, just heart bleeding with compassion. So here's Jesus' logic. The Father is recklessly compassionate toward the one who is lost. And that word lost, it's got a bad rap today. It doesn't mean far away idiots that gotta get their act together and figure out a way back. It doesn't mean, oh, they're out there and aren't we glad we're not out there with them? or they better figure it out and come back. No, lost means loved. Lost means I can't wait to be with that one and leave the others. So do we have that? The Father is recklessly compassionate toward the one who is lost. So be like him. Be like your Father in heaven. If a member of the community stumbles or wanders, this is a big theme for the rest of the sermon, you go to them. We have a responsibility. We have a command. From our Lord. We go to them just like our Father has gone and come to us in Jesus. We're like him. God came to us in Jesus. We go to those who need to be reached. And that's Jesus' logic. That's what he's saying here. The community of Jesus is a community that goes to the one who's wandering. And Park Hill, I mean, look around the room. As we grow together, it's going to be more and more vital that our communities function more and more like families that have their eyes open, not just inward, but open outward, actively praying for and planning to seek out those who wander. At Park Hill Church, our community leaders really do function in that shepherding role. We view you community leaders. If we had five minutes, I would have you stand and we'd all clap for four and a half minutes, you know what I mean? You guys are amazing. And you do function in a unique shepherding role within Park Hill Church. Uh, we're, we're just over a year old right now, and our pastoral staff is relatively small at, at this point. And so it's so important that we recognize the calling on each of your lives to function pastorally, which means shepherdly, same word, poemen in the Greek, pastor and shepherd, same word. It's so important that we function pastorally toward toward one another. There's no way you can leave it up to the paid professionals in every case. That's not how the church is supposed to work anyways. So for the last 500 years, Protestant Christianity has called this the priesthood of all believers. So thankful for that. that. That phrase comes out of the theology of Martin Luther and William Tyndale, and it's grounded in a whole biblical view of what it means to be a community of God's 
kingdom of priests. Did you know that's what you are? You're a royal family of priests and priestesses. I don't even know if that's a word, but just lump it all. It's gender neutral, priests. If you've placed your trust in Jesus and follow him in this community, then guess what? You are part of the priesthood of all believers, which means we are each responsible for the pastoral care of one another's souls. Did you know this? Probably the most famous single passage on this is 1 Peter 2. Watch this. Amazing. 1 Peter 2, 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. And then verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. So you have royal blood and you're part of the priestly tribe, both. There's no longer like one kingly tribe and you gotta just kind of like salute the king as he walks by Park Hill Church or whatever. And, and, and there's no like priestly tribe of people who are only qualified to function as shepherds. You are now all royal and you are now all priests, which means you have the father's loved child status and full uh, open door policy into the intimate places in your community's life. Say, hey, you, I sense this behavior. I sense this thing. I love you. You know me. We have a relationship. But listen, brother or sister, I, I, I don't see that ending well for you. I have my issues too. Can we talk about this? Can you come to Jesus with me about this? This is our role. We are a priesthood of all believers. And this is a game changer, you guys. So if you're here and you follow Jesus in his community, you're part of this priesthood of all believers. It's amazing. This means we don't just let people, there's a slide for this, we don't just let people walk away from the community of Jesus in their pain, anger, and sin. You don't do that. We don't do that. As Jesus' kingdom of priests, we're to seek and save those who are wandering and broken. And you guys, I'll be honest, what I've seen I grew up in the church, Southern California, um, big churches, lots of people rotating all the time. And when a follower of Jesus starts behaving in ways that are just like blatantly broken, like I'm just gonna live in my sin. I'm just, I, yes, I was following Jesus for a while, grew up in the whatever, but I'm just gonna do my own thing. Whenever a follower, a previous follower of Jesus is living in full sin, they're often, what that is, they're crying out for help. And, and when the community doesn't see that and act in love on that, we become like lazy and apathetic about their brokenness that they're crying out for help for. This is why so many people walk away from the church because they don't feel cared for in their brokenness and they genuinely feel like there's no space for them to process. And so the silence is condemning and they're unwelcome, and they felt they weren't given time or space to actually be with people who loved them, and they didn't feel their community came around them and loved them back into the family patiently, so they left. Story after story after story. Jesus is calling us to be a seeking community. This is why our Park Hill communities exist. People can come to this 9 a.m. gathering and hide so easily. Our Park Hill communities exist to be spaces where the majority of pastoring in our church happens. So by the way, you're getting a sneak peek of our basics class right now. We believe this is so central to who we're called to be. Because as Park Hill continues to grow and relationships deepen, it's gonna be so important. We have a vision for this. We are kingdom of priests. So question, Just put this on the screen. Can you think of someone who's walked away from the community of Jesus? You don't have to like verbally or even not, you just think. Could the Holy Spirit be leading you to seek them out? Jesus is taking us somewhere. Listen to the next part. He moves from seeking those that have wandered. Now he talks about dealing and confronting with those among us. 
Yeah, yay. This is intense right now, you guys. And I wanna be the church that embodies this. There are many that are, and it's beautiful to watch. Starting in verse 15, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. Or in the Greek, you've gained a sibling. If, if they listen, awesome. But if they don't listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He's saying you have the authority to do this. And then verse 19, again, truly I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. Saying, Lord, give us wisdom. Give us wisdom on dealing with this sin in our community. Jesus says, my Father will give it. You have the authority to step forward with my Father's wisdom. Trust that he's with you. For where two or three gather my name, there I am. So this is healthy conflict resolution 101 from Jesus. Um, <clears throat> if your brother or sister sins, go to them. Let's, so if your brother or sister sins, go. Let's do it together. Let's say it. If your brother or sister sins, go to them. So I feel like, I feel like doing that 10 more times <laughs> just because we don't go to people. We don't go to people. We don't go to them. Uh, like, man alive, like the amount of pain and relational just junk that I create, have created by triangulating and by going to someone and, and saying, oh, can I, can you keep me accountable not to be bitter right now? <laughs> or whatever. And then you just be bitter and you just unload. The amount of times in my life and I could have just gone to the person directly instead of venting to a third party or, or, or just brooding by myself and believing the lies of Satan. Like I could have saved entire relationships and narratives and stories that God may have wanted me to step into for the long haul. I would have kept bridges from burning if I would have gone to them. Go to them. Like I'm a verbal processor, which is not always good. Just to verbally, like I'm tempted to just, just go and and. My, all my life, the temptation for me is to, is, has to be a backbiter. And I don't want to be. I just want to be hurt. I just want a sounding board. And, uh, and that's literally the most toxic thing in a church. Hands down, I believe. Gossip and triangulation and, oh, I'm just verbally processing with my accountability partner or whatever. <laughs> um, that will destroy the work of God in Park Hill Church. Don't do it, please. Please don't do it. I reference now the Jesus and judging sermon I gave in Matthew 7. Because there are ways of healthy conflict and healthy confrontation that I mentioned in that sermon. I think it'd be very helpful to re revisit for all of us. Jesus commands us, go directly to the offender and point out their fault, not out of nowhere, but in a context of commitment. Like, you know me, I love you, we're here. We're in this for the long haul. Do you know this? Establish that, establish that. We're in this for the long haul, you and me forever. Now there was this thing that happened. And do it, like goodness. Like everything will come unhinged if you don't do that. Maybe you're experiencing that. There's grace and there's redemption that's right around the corner. In the community of Jesus, there is forgiveness that glues everything together. That's why Jesus is going to end this chapter on forgiveness. But right now, let's head it off at the pass and go to them. And the flip side is, like, I would say even harder. What if someone is the one, <laughs> what if you're the one being approached? And you're Christian, and you're in the community, and they're going to you, just like I'm saying to. And you're like, oh, this is, this is not, <laughs> this doesn't feel, I think that's, that's harder often. Um, when people come to you with the critique, be the kind of person who willingly invites correction. Proverbs, again, the fool despises correction. 
No one's, no one wants to be a fool. Put it in that way, okay, bring it on, you know? Like, I'd rather be not a fool. In fact, you might be the one who has to open the can on yourself. Like, you might have to be like, okay, you guys, I sense there's tension here. Like, we're a community, I love you. I've, I've noticed things have just changed. Things have kind of just tweaked a little bit, and it's like, I just, I want to know, what, it, what are my blind spots in these relationships? That's, a, that's an important conversation to revisit with friends that you're committed to. What are my blind spots? How, how, how is it between us, really? I want to know how to repent, because I sense there's something going on. That's opening the can on yourself. You don't know how liberating that can be for people. And then, but, but here's the thing. When they start talking, zip it. And just, just sit there with them. Goodness, these last two years have taught me that. Working so closely with so much to do with such amazing people. So here in Matthew 18, Jesus gives simple steps for healthy confrontation in the church. So here's practically, Park Hill Church, this might be how it goes down for you. So step one, someone is in deliberate sin. Someone's like totally messing up, no sign of a change. It's just hard. So in your community, in your community. So maybe they've sinned against you specifically or whatever. Uh, number one, first meet just the two of you. Again, go to go to them. So first, you go to them. Just go to them directly, honestly. And listen, be, you might want to write this down. This changed my life. When you confront them, be as specific as you can with maybe two or three examples. Don't, don't say, you know what? You're just not a good listener. Like, you just don't listen. Like, broad Always, never statements. You know, like that, they don't, they don't know what to do with it. There's a giant cloud of fault. They don't know, there's no handhold. So like, you're just not a good, li- don't do that. Or you're like a prideful person or whatever. Goodness, no, specific, like this. Like, prepare specifics. Like, hey, and preferably start in the first person. Like, I felt unheard when I was speaking to you over lunch and you were checking Instagram. I felt unheard in that moment. Do you remember that? I know you probably didn't mean that. And if you did, I, for, I want to forgive you, but I just want to, it's been awkward. Or like, I felt myself, here's a good start like this. I felt myself getting defensive when, so helpful too. <laughs> I felt myself getting defensive when our mutual friend told me what you said last week behind my back. I felt myself getting defensive. What was going on there? I want to, I want to hear your heart and work that out. There's a handhold for them at that moment, and it's gracious. There's a way forward. So you get the idea. Be specific and prepared. And so that's just you and them. Step one, just you and them. Step t- and if that doesn't work, if things just go south, they're like, get off my back or whatever. Uh, then step two, Jesus, this is from Matthew 18. Step two, invite one or two other trusted people from your community to the table. Hey, we talked once. Can we meet again? I really, I think it'd be good to do it, one or two from our community together. That way we can all be heard and there's no he said, she said. Because like Matt Persley, our executive guy here, he's like, there's what he said, there's what she said, and there's the truth, you know? I love that. Because that's often the case. And so let's bring the others. And if that doesn't work, and the situation is just as bad, the offending person refuses to repent, or even listen, then step three. This is getting really bad, rarely gets here uh, in, in the community of Christ. Step three, invite your whole Park Hill community to prayerfully weigh in on the issue. Invite your whole Park Hill community to pray and tell it to the church. Jesus says, tell it to the church. That is your church in that context. Obviously, it would be weird if we told it to the 9 a.m. gathering. You know what I mean? That, that wouldn't work as well. Um, we don't believe that's the application of that command. Tell it to your community, whatever, t- six, 10, 15 are there. This is an unresolved major issue we've dealt with twice already. Help community. That's like when it's really, that, like, if, that's like when it's really bad, like uh, unrepentant, unwilling to budge kind of stuff, um, like abuse or divorce is right around the corner, or deep, deep bitterness. And then finally, if that doesn't work, and this is 
So rare, thank God. But it happens. And it will happen here if it gets to this point. God forbid. If a person chooses to remain in willful, unrepentant opposition to the way of Jesus after being confronted repeatedly by their community and elders, and they still refuse to acknowledge their sin, Jesus commands us to do something that seems super harsh. Jesus says this, verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now that grates against us, our desire for openness and inclusion, all those things that are values today. It seems harsh, but we have to understand this. This is talking about a person who knows who Jesus is, who understands what following Jesus has meant, and has demonstrated some level of agreement with the gospel in the past. Understand that. But for whatever reason now, the person has decided to willfully enter into behavior that is against the teachings and authority of Jesus. So, so get this. I want to be super clear. It would be so horrible to be misunderstood at this point. Let me be clear. This is a person who's saying, I was a disciple, and now I'm choosing to live. I'm choosing to live outside the way of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, okay. Basically, treat them like they're not a disciple. Their life is making the statement. Treat them like the statement their life is making. Jesus is just saying, hey, sometimes you call, gotta call a spade a spade. Like, let's not fool ourselves what's going on. Let's just call it what it is. And again, it's not talking about, not talking about a person who's just like, he's been, been here six months or three months or been checking out Jesus, not really sure what they think of the Bible or Jesus, and they're just, but they feel welcome. They feel like there's something good happening here. They're, they're jiving, you know what I mean? Whatever that means. They're like super into it. And, and, and if that's you, that's beautiful. You're welcome here. That's so, so good. That's exactly why you plant churches is to be an attractive community of Jesus that has it so thrilled to have you. So I hope for you, if that's you, you come to find out how incredible Jesus is and you step into an entire life of following him with a community of the spirit that will last forever, okay? Um, so, so Jesus isn't talking about an, like an unbeliever or a newcomer here. Jesus is talking about a professing Christian who now chooses to live outside the way of Jesus, and Jesus is saying, okay, treat him that way. Like, wh why would we lie about that? <laughs> love them, love them. How do you treat a pagan and tax collector? Jesus ate with them. Be hospitable. Love them. Hang, yeah, be completely kind to them. Invite them into the family of God just like you would anyone who's not a disciple. Whatever their sin of choice is that's taking them away, maybe it's sexual sin or holding on to bitterness or a pattern of abuse of some kind, whatever it is, we'll be here when they get back. Like We'll be here. They know where to find us. Open, we will never, when they realize how damaging, when they realize the damage they're causing to their soul, we will never be like, I told you so, ever. We will never do that. Like, just say the word, we will come running to bring, we'll get on an airplane, help you pack your things, bring you back into the house, and you say the word. That is our posture. Because here's the deal, the glue that holds this entire Christianity thing together is that kind of forgiveness. And that's how Jesus ends this chapter with this almost, it's almost the second half of the chapter is this beautiful story about reckless, nonsensical forgiveness. Because forgiveness is the glue that holds all the, the sin and the broken and the stumbling and, and all the falling and the, the awkward confrontations holds all that together. Picture bricks, like cracked. We're all cracked stones. And then there's this mortar. There's this cement that's woven through it all evenly, perfectly applied by a master mason. And that, that, that mortar, that cement between the broken stones is forgiveness, it's been said if Christianity isn't about forgiveness, it is about nothing. Christian, you could just say forgiveanity. It's, it's the same thing. It's the same. 
And the disciples are starting to get this, but it's freaking them out, which prompts them to ask a second question. Look at verse 21. Here's where we wrap up. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, okay, he's starting to get what this costs. It costs a reckless, painful, to my own heart's hurt forgiveness. That's what, this is, that's what Jesus is asking of his community. He's getting it. Lights are coming on. And so he's like, how many times? How many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven? Seven was the Jewish number of like completeness. Like that's all, like done, mission accomplished. And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, and here's this parable. Let this wash over your heart. Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly right now. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he wasn't able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I'll pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 silver coins, much less. He grabbed him, began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, I'll pay him back. He should have had deja vu at that moment, but he did not. Verse 30, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison till he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant. Calling a spade a spade right there. You wicked servant. He said, I... I Canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In, in anger, in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. What a picture. So how did the Father treat the unforgiving servant? Think critically. The Father did not torture him. The Father was angered and the father handed him over to the jailer. The father gave him over to his paradigm of unforgiveness. We are children of a good father. We've been forgiven all the way down. Whether it's a million dollars, 500 million, 500 trillion dollars worth of spiritual debt you owed. God has wiped it clean upon your confession of faith in Jesus as Messiah, the, the Christ who hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them. As he's receiving the worst sin of all time, the crucifixion of God, Father, forgive them. So the moment you say, I hear forgiveness, I hear that, that's mine. Thank you, God. Thank you for forgiving me. The moment you say, I receive, I, you are the Lord who forgives and I receive your forgiveness. You are forgiven all the way down. Do you know this? If you do not know Jesus, this can be true for you too. The Father offers you forgiveness all the way down, all the way down. So, so imagine now being forgiven all the way down. You turn around and someone owes you $100 of spiritual debt whatever that is, whatever the offense. And you take it to your grave in bitterness. That is a kind of hell that you have created for yourself that you have blocked the Father out from redeeming you from. This is the idea here. 
This is the idea here. That prison of your own unforgiveness is locked from the inside and you're fist clutching the key. And your torment is of your own making. Your father will give you to that. What else could he do? We're to be little children which are like our father, forgiving our fellow brothers and sisters because of this insane, ridiculous, reckless, nonsensical forgiveness he's given all of us. That's the well we draw from. In those moments where you're approached, it's like go to them and someone goes to you, they're like, I see this thing in you. Or maybe they're super broad. Maybe they're like, you always say stupid things or whatever. <laughs> and, you're, and, and you're like, what do I do with this? Oh, I know what to do with this. Father, forgive her, forgive him. They don't know what they're doing. They don't even know how to apologize or how to confront or whatever. They don't know, they don't know. But Lord, you were on a cross being executed, forgiving, and I follow you. And so that's the well I draw from. I'm like you, I'm like, I'm like the Father too, I'm like you in forgiveness. This is how we become the kind of community that's glued together like Jesus. All the confronting and the sins and all the, all the mess, it's mortared in, it's locked in, and we, we become the house that God is building for himself in the world through the cement in between us that we agree upon is forgiveness. This is the end of the story. This is the end of the chapter. Accepting God's forgiveness. Can we stand? Just a thought to consider, and then we'll come to the table where where we come face to face with Jesus' act of forgiveness. My gosh, you guys. I wanna be this kind of community with you for decades. Family of churches in the greater San Diego area, full of forgiveness, just giving each other so many cancellations of debts. I wanna be, be that. I'm in it for the long haul, you guys. And I want, I want us to consider this. Take a deep breath. You don't have to close your eyes. Sometimes we close our eyes. I encourage you to keep your eyes open for this prayer, this moment of reflection, because <laughs> the community is where the problems are. Keep your eyes open to the community right now. Think of this. An unhealed person can find offense in pretty much anything someone does. Jesus wants to heal us through our receiving of his forgiveness because a healed person understands that the actions of others really have nothing to do with them. It's something that God wants to redeem them from. So let's decide who we are today, a community of forgivers.